0: Okay now i um I probably should mention i I was writing these this week just because of cramming lots of stuff in, and I never got to go over them beforehand, so I never knew how long they would go for so that that talk went longer than I was uh, hoping or intending so i 'm going to try and compress this one down, make it shorter here because i 'm sure you guys are wanting to have tea and and things like that um, <coughs> Now with uh, the clicker. So uh, what I want to look at now, like we've um, looked at the problem of evil, looked at what, what I think is the context for evil and the most significant response. Um in terms of why why is there is evil. But now I want to look at God's response to evil. What does he what does he do about it? If this is the situation. Is this, if this is what can happen if freedom goes wrong, and yet the goal of fr- freedom, you know, this community of love, is so significant to God that He, he wants it to happen. Um, what does God do? How does He respond to this? Because um, He still wants to retain the aim that uh, freedom was originally given for. And what it basically means is that God's response to evil... Is not resignation, nor is it causation. You know, he's causing it, but it's it's war. Um, so sin and evil and that war against God, but God wars against evil. However, uh, God doesn't war as we war, if I put it that way. God doesn't fight as we fight. And uh, got the verse here. Um, uh, Paul's talking and he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. So there's a, there's a fleshly way of fighting and, and there's an alternative way of fighting. fighting. And so God conducts this cosmic war, or His pardon, in such a way to ultimately win it at the end, but also win over the ones who are committing evil Committing sin, rebelling against God, and hostile to to Him, and that's actually a really difficult thing to do. And um, so I'm going to I'm going to look at it uh, now, and then next weekend we'll also look at it. And you know, it's evil is so extensive that the, the the approach or response to it is actually quite extensive, and that's why uh, not only we'll look at it now, but also next weekend. Because there's no no sort of quick way to undo um, sin and pain and suffering and evil. Um, there's a bit more on that later. So I want to look at uh, what it looks like for God to fight. You know, um, what does it take to win against uh, evil? Now, it's interesting. Most when you, when you look at this whole topic of the problem of evil, most theodicies or Explanations are highly th- philosophical. They just try and explain why is there evil, but very rarely do they tackle is like, well, how do you get rid of it? How do you resolve it? They're not, often not that practical. They're just me- metaphysical uh, explanations. And even you know, atheists they use the ish- issue of evil against God, but that, that's just to score some points in a theoretical argument. They actually have no effective response to evil. If there's no God how will human beings stop pain, suffering, and evil? We make little adjustments, we minimize some things, but we've shown ourselves incapable of resolving the problem. So they actually have nothing to offer there. And the other thing is, um, and we, we saw that there's no explanation for evil, ultimately. In other words, evil confounds people who try and explain it. You know, they try and answer the why question, evil confounds all rational explanation. That's why there needs to be a practical response to it. Um, So, against traditional theodicies, the warfare one is practical and doesn't get bogged down in the theoretical. And against the skeptical assault, it actually offers real hope and the possibility of an end to evil and overcoming it. Um, Now, again... I'm just going to just have to just go over things and there's so much detail I have to leave out and, and Roy and Jinha will have opportunity to tackle these sort of things um, later on. But um, basically, in the Old Testament, what you have is preparation. God fights evil but in a non-ultimate way. So he, he tackles it, he restrains it, but he, he never fully, truly overcomes it. And he's constantly just trying to hold things together restrain things sometimes it gets so bad he steps in and he just eliminates extreme evil but most of the time it continues on and it's really just a preparation for the real fight and the real fight is um, in the New Testament now most people think of religion as man's search for God that's a secular way of understanding or it's, it's about ethics you know religion is just about ethics about what you do. You know, if you look at the Gospels, the Bible, they, they just don't, do not fit those um, definitions. And instead, they say that true religion is actually God's search for man. And more than that, it's an invasion, it's war. True spirituality is actually God fighting. But um, God fights in the strangest way. If you and I, if you were going to invade, what would you do? You'd get your best troops, wouldn't you? You would aim for overwhelming force. So you knew you would win. How does God invade? Basically, he sends a baby. <sighs> Pretty extraordinary invasion, yeah? But you've got to understand that the coming of um, Jesus into the world is actually an invasion, among other things. It's a lot of things, but most people don't think of it think of the Christmas story. Oh, nice songs and whatever. It's an invasion. It's actually an act of war, believe it or not. Now, it's many other things, but it's, it's, it's that. And here you've got the, um, what the angel said to um, Joseph and Mary. But it just says about you'll bear the son and you will um, call his name Jesus for he will save. He'll deliver his people from their sins. He's going he's gonna to rescue people. And, and then later down it says, um, he fulfills the prophecy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this brings us to the first important part of how God actually responds to evil. And it's a crucial revolutionary event. God responds with the incarnation. And that's just a, it's a Latin word, two words, well, one word, inca- carne, you know, meat, flesh. You see it on the, the in restaurant and in the menu and Italian places, in fleshment. God comes in the flesh. God comes like one of us in, in our form. Now it's the mind-blowing reality that a perfect, all-powerful, untouchable, spiritual, holy creator, God, would do the unthinkable, and he would leave all of that and come down into human flesh, not as a superhuman but as a human like you and I, not with massive advantages of wealth and power, but he actually comes in poverty. And he's actually subject to all the problems that we have, all the liabilities to weakness, tiredness, struggle, subject to suffering and pain and all our limitations, spiritual temptation and testing. This is the uh, amazing thing because... Remember we looked at how love and freedom have risk? The incarnation is God experiencing risk. Because he's not coming as God. He's leaving. He's not going to touch that. He's going to come as a human being. This is risk. But it's a risk to God. Which is pretty... Ex- Remember, I, I, you know the it was so phenomenally extraordinary and out of this ordinary. It's just... The scale is immense. The answer is equally extraordinary. God who risks all. Now, um, I just want to, a few verses which really emphasise this concept of incarnation. I just want to go through a few. Um, this is a big one, but um, it says that at start, for a little while, Jesus is made lower than angels. Um, he's crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then later on it says, um, since therefore the children share in b- flesh and blood, that's us. We Got flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, took part of the same, that he might, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Destroy. So this is, you can see the warfare part of it, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to a lifetime of slavery. For surely, it's not angels that he helps. He doesn't need to help them, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, or human beings. Therefore, he had to be, he had to be made like us. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make uh, propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, This is the incarnation. He becomes a human being for all these reasons. And I'll just recap them um, later on. There's a, another verse. And it says, since we have a, a great uh, high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without sin. And um, I'll, I'll just, won't look at that one. So, um, this is amazing. Why would God do this? He actually does not need to do it for himself. God, has no, God is complete, He's perfect. and um, In fact, it's a terrible humiliation on behalf of God to do this. To, to undertake this steep descent into not just, remember, not perfect humanity, but in corrupted, fallen humanity in this corrupt, fallen, sinful world. So He comes right down to this level. And it's pretty clear that He's doing it for us, not for, for Himself. Um, the human race is in a bondage to a whole list of problems, sin and death and evil and selfishness and a cycle of violence. So God evidently knows that the only way out of this, okay, because we can't get out of it ourselves, if, if God himself enters into this. And in a sense, he makes it his, his own. Only then can he actually resolve it. He makes it his and so, um, Jesus must be just like us. Uh, we're the ones that he needs to help. Um, he must be like, like us, weak, fallen human beings, but without sin. He, he cannot do that. Um, he mustn't have any adv- advantages. Now, he must uh, be able to undergo death. Because remember we talked about natural evil? And, and the ultimate of natural evil is actually death. So he must be subject to the problem of natural evil. But he also must be subject to real temptation. And so the, the problem of moral evil. So he's tackling all of these things. Um, and it, it, the other... Remember, there's also the problem of pain and suffering. And did you notice in those verses, it talks about how it was obviously a quest for God that he wanted to be able to sympathize with human suffering and understand it from the inside. So God as God, understands our suffering and has a certain empathy as God. But God actually wanted to do more than that. He actually wanted to experience it as a human being, so from the inside out. It was a new thing that God could actually only achieve if he became a human being, and he wanted to do that. So he has a special sympathy for all human suffering. And I mean, we look out, and it's horrendous what is happening. But what these verses say is, in a sense, God feels this. So he's not distant. I think that's a pretty significant thing. He feels it as God, but as a human being. That's a a profound thing. Um, And so God tackles evil at its very root, in himself. He tackles it in himself. Becomes part of the problem, as it were. And he wrestles with it, in the front line, in his own nerves and tissue. Obviously, God doesn't have nerves and tissue, but he became human, so in his own nerves and tissue. So it's not an external solution. It's a radical one. It's an internal solution that God is doing. And again, I look at all this whole literature on the problem of evil. This is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. He's actually getting right in there. Um, And then what he does is, is, by becoming a human being, he relives human experience that is common to all of us. And, and, but this time, he overcomes evil. He, over, he never gives into it. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes temptation and whatever uh, is happening. Um, and he reveals. Also, remember we looked at that moral controversy, and he starts answering the issues of the moral controversy. Those questions that have been asked about God and cannot be unasked. But how do they? How can they be answered? Well, by him coming in here, he starts to answer them. And so when you look at Jesus, you actually see that God's law, his moral order, his government is not the problem at all. Um, In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus, you think that is human life at its best. And he is God's moral order. He's living it out. And you go, the the initial lie or controversy, the accusations against God um, cannot be true. He is the perfect life. He's the pain-relieving life. He's the suffering solving life, as it were, the evil stopping life. Um, so he shows what uh, life is truly like when, um, when, when you're following God. Now, his incarnation then makes his ministry possible. So this is, this is very significant. Um, this is how Jesus announce, announces his mission. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news about God, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what I want you to see is that Jesus' ministry demonstrates the kingdom of God, which is the thing that's at dispute. Remember Satan has raised issues about the government or the kingdom of God. So Jesus actually, at hand, other versions have, it's brought near. He brings it right into our midst where we can actually touch it and see it. Like the heavenly, perfect rule of God, what does it look like if it's in a sinful environment? In the Old Testament, we actually don't see that. We see it when Jesus turns up. And we can experience it and become part of it. Because the world is currently not God's kingdom. It's Remember um, the prayer, Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, it's not currently being done on earth. But Jesus wants to turn that around. Okay, and, and, and so um, Scripture affirms that the world actually lies under the power of, of evil and the evil one. And so um, Paul says, um, he's talking, in their case, is the God of this world. So there's another God. There's the true God and there's the God of this world. has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God who is in the image, glory of Christ who is the image of God. Um, so Jesus reveals what God is really like. The opponent wants to blind that, but notice he's actually called the God of this world. Here he's, it says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And Jesus himself, um, down the bottom here, he's, he's talking just before he dies. He says, um, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. In other words, he's saying, look, um, I'm about to undergo horrendous evil crucifixion. The ruler of this world, he's coming for me. But notice that last phrase, he says, he has no claim on me. In other words, he has claim on everyone else. Everyone else is part of the rebellion against God, not me. He has no claim over me. So he is actually uh, declaring how he's actually won in in this personal battle against um, evil. Now, the coming of, notice uh, Jesus announced that um, he's bringing the kingdom of God. This is an alternative kingdom, and its aim is to destroy the kingdom of the evil one. And I just want to uh, look at this verse where Jesus outlines this. You know, He just uh, healed a, a, a demon-possessed man, and they attribute um, that to evil. They say, oh, Jesus did it through evil. And uh, this is part of his response. And he says, uh, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? But if I cast out demons by Baalzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But notice this, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And what um, Jesus is doing is he's clarifying things here and he's saying that God's kingdom is particularly about fighting evil and the evil one and that Jesus in his ministry is binding or restraining him and plundering him. So he's invading, he's assaulting, he's, he's actually trying to uh, rescue and despoil the kingdom of evil. Um, and notice that the, the act of exorcism is the actual event of the kingdom in their midst. They actually get to see what... It is like, and um, God's kingdom is one that brings freedom from sin and evil, pain and suffering, and sickness and death. And Jesus' whole ministry reveals what God is like, um, and what His kingdom is like. And and Jesus is about establishing God's God as King. Now, <clears throat> what does His ministry look like? What does He what does He do? There's a, a really good summary. And I want to look at this um, here. And so uh, it says in Matthew 9 that Jesus went through all the cities and villages. This is what he did. Teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then later on, he commissions his own followers and he says, um, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. You receive without paying. Give without pay. Okay. Now, his ministry is a threefold ministry. And if you look up the top, you can see it. Okay. So, notice, he goes about and he teaches. And then he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And then he heals every disease. So it's the threefold um, ministry that he does. Now, teaching obviously is instructing, right? It is um, dispelling darkness and error with truth. Now, proclaiming, what's the difference between tre- teaching and proclaiming? Well, proclaiming is different because it actually brings the kingdom. It actually invites people to leave one way of life and enter into a new one. So it's actually moving people from one place to another. And then, of course, healing is the visible, practical demonstration uh, and relief of pain and suffering. And so when you look at um, Jesus' healings, they're actually illustrations of what God's kingdom is like, but they're also acts of war. and and, And notice, how does God wage war? He heals. He heals. He delivers. How do we wage war? We we beat the other person up, don't we? So it's a it's a different sort of um, kingdom, and I just want to it's a bit of a recap for some of you. But the range of the works of Jesus that demonstrate the kingdom. So healings. These 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 are the things he heals: Um, blindness, both congenital and acquired blindness. Sometimes people blind from birth. People who are mute, deaf people who are lame or paralyzed. Uh, it describes someone with a withered hand. Leprosy. Uh, high fever, which is like a real extreme case. Um, once dropsy or edema. Um, chronic bleeding, one case. And then various unidentified illnesses. So he, he's, he does all these healings. Then remember he tackles death itself. So Resurrection. He performed some of them. Also, his acts of the kingdom bring about social inclusion. So, lepers, who are outcasts, he brings them back into society. This is what his kingdom does. Samaritans, ethnic divisions, he bridges to so Jews and Samaritans. Dislike each other the way um, Israeli, Israeli and Palestinians do. But notice what happens when the kingdom comes it starts to bridge these gaps. Um, His new treatment of women, radical at the time, children, he treats them in a a completely new way. Um, No one in the ancient world actually treats children the way Jesus does. It's bizarre. But if you actually read all the philosophers, all the um, great teachers, children are just not part of the deal. And then Jesus comes along. It's really extraordinary. Uh, you know, people who are prostitutes who are rejected um, by society, and obviously obviously were part of the dark side of society. He rescues them, the poor, he elevates them. Um, then spiritual things, his kingdom brings like forgiveness. It's an act of the kingdom. Um, tackles pride, arrogance, exorcisms, which we saw. So it brings spiritual freedom, and then natural miracles. So notice that's we've talked about um, moral evils, social evils. He's healing them spiritual evils, but then natural evils like the healings, but also uh, he multiplies food when people need it and he calms storms. In other words, you actually see the kingdom, what is it like when, when God rules? Just think, what would it look like if God ruled? He was the president, he was the king, he was the prime minister. We, we know what it looks like when human beings, what does it look like if God, you see, that is actually what, when you see Jesus, that's actually what you're observing what it's like when God is boss. That's a beautiful, amazing picture. And notice how holistic it is. He's tackling all these areas of pain, suffering, and evil. And there's nothing like it in human history. And it's the, it's the brightest spot in human history. And it's the sign of, of what is to come. Now, um, so what happens when the kingdom of God encounters blindness? Someone gets to see uh, what happens when the kingdom of God encounters discrimination and prejudice and mutual human hate. Jews and Samaritans are brought together again, you know. And we could go through all the elements of what the king does, but the kingdom does. But the most extraordinary part of God's fight against evil is the last part, which is the climax to Jesus' life. Even though Jesus was a healer of all who came to Him, a great teacher, non-violent, peaceful, uh, people end up killing Him, which is always a a rather strange turn of events, isn't it? Um, But the the leaders conspired against Him, and it, it appears in the crucifixion of Jesus that evil has won, because Jesus becomes the victim of injustice, immense suffering, torture, abuse, and humiliation but this is actually God's ultimate act of war against evil. And I mean, when we think of war, we think, what is going on? The cross is actually God's ultimate act of war because he uses his ultimate weapon, which is self-sacrificing love, where he gives himself for his enemies. And... You know, Again, I've, I looked at all the literature on the problem of evil and then I see this and I think, this is just astonishing. This really is an answer to evil. God has the right to judge and punish and destroy justly and um, it would not be unjust if he did so but instead he does something different. He gives himself for his enemies. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And I just... Um, Paul has a description here. And there's a lot of descriptions. And this is going to just touch on a few things. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciles, reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he explains it, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And now he's entrusted to us the mes- message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're God's ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. And God is making his appeal through us. And so Paul says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. This this is the cross event. Who had no, no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, not only does Jesus become a human being, the incarnation, enters the whole problem from the inside. He does one more. He actually becomes the problem. He becomes sin. He becomes evil. He becomes everything that is wrong in the world. Even though he's innocent, he takes it on himself. He assumes all human sin as if it's his responsibility. You know, some people say it's not fair. You know, God is God, but he he hasn't really taken responsibility for everything and he's allowing everyone else to suffer. God actually, even though He is not responsible, He assumes responsibility for it all in the cross. And and you know His suffering, His physical suffering is torturous and terrible, but His um it's dwarfed by the intense, extreme psychological, spiritual suffering that He undergoes. Um, he experiences the ultimate death due and suffering due to evil. And, um. No one has actually experienced this. We only get a taste of it sometimes when, you know, you've done something absolutely horrendously wrong and then you realize you've done it wrong and you realize you can't change it and you have this sense of shame and guilt and dread because you've got to meet these circumstances. You've got to face up to that other person and it's, it's, it's part of the most... Hor- that and when someone in your love dies, they're the worst experiences you can have in life. But that's only the tiniest taste of what Jesus does in taking all this. You think of the billions and billions of people, the trillions upon trillions of evil acts. He assumes all of it. Takes it in order to take it away. In other words, bring an end to evil. Now, um, I'll recap one verse and look at one other. Um, because the, the cross actually accomplishes so many things, this last event in Jesus' life. And again, um, Roy and Jin ha can start exploring a lot of this. But, we, you know, one is um, Jesus tastes death on behalf of everyone else, right? So he can actually conquer death and rescue us from it. So, I mean, death is one of the ultimate evils, isn't it? Because it just ends everything. We've got pain and suffering, then we die. That's it. There's no comeback. So he's, he wants to turn that around. Um, and yeah, so he wants to, just, through death, undergoing it, he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. And then he wants to take away our sins, the, the, the hostility, uh, hostility between us and God. You know, this war, we've actually been fighting against God. And so he's, he's basically calling a peace treaty there, taking away all that is wrong. So on the cross, God exposes evil, our evil, For what it is, he vindicates God, his character, his reign. He shows what God is really like. Helps resolve that moral controversy. Unmasks the ideological accusations against God. Takes away human sin, provides forgiveness, reconciliation with us and God, and then between ourselves. He wins us over with love, because this is actually a battle for hearts and minds. And then combined with the resurrection, conquers death. Okay, now, I'm basically ending now. But here's the thing. How can Jesus, even though he does all this, yet be the total solution because evil is still continuing in the world, right? And Jesus is one person, one life, one event, one period of time. So how does that resolve the ongoing occurrence of evil? And and so, next weekend, we're actually going to start looking at that. Because the, the point is, in Jesus, in principle, He's actually resolved everything. In Himself, in His own person. But, it hasn't gone beyond Him. Well, there are ways it goes beyond Him, and we'll look at that. But it has to go beyond Him. He has to universalize that. And that is where it becomes really crucial, really relevant to us because God is actually working out what He's achieved in Jesus. He's working out in our lives, in this world, and eventually cosmically. So we're going to look at that, how it moves from just being true in Jesus and then uh, true into the rest of the world. And so um, next week, we've got um, on the Friday night... (coughs) The painful past, gaining personal peace. This is very relevant to you individually. So I really want to encourage you or some other friends to come on the Friday night. Right? Um, Really, really personally applicable to you. And then on the Saturday, um, the present possibilities changing the world. Really relevant for you as a group. But actual actual change now. Um, And then the final talk, uh, the end, ultimate end of evil, because how does he finally end it all? And I'm pleased to tell you Roy will be taking that one. <laughs> so you'll really want to be there for that one. Now, um, you'll see this under your seat, and there's pens there. <clears throat> so uh, this is just an opportunity do a few things. So you've got uh, Roy's uh, phone number so you can also text him more questions and things you want to do. But also if you want to be um, explore these topics further and, and get involved and, and, and let me say this um, where do you want to be? Do you do you want to be part of God's ongoing solution? Or just oh, there's pain, there's suffering, yeah, why? And, and just get Go on an autonomous life. Um, these are opportunities so you can just expose yourself, learn more, get involved and, and, and pursue that. So um, if you want, you know, you'd like info- information about future topics, what else they're going to discuss. Um, There's such a huge area. There's so many exciting things you can look at. Um, maybe a small group and it's great. You just get together with friends. It's relaxed. You get to talk, eat. It's fun. You want to be part of that with other young people here in the city or near to the city, that's fantastic. Um, I want to be part of that, but I've, I've got a, I can't. Um, or small groups on navigating relationships, which um, actually is to do with pain and suffering. Relationships are wonderful, but they are difficult. Um, personal Bible studies. If you want to actually look at this stuff in depth and other stuff, socials. You just want to hang out. So fill that out or other things, maybe questions or is this something that you really want to tackle. Can you please fill them out? Thanks.